As we continue our uh, series this morning uh, in the book of Romans, and JC, if you can bring up the first slide, please. The name of the message this morning is, Who Do You Belong To? Who do you belong to? And I want to start by reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 10 to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if Messiah is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. This next verse I'm going to read very slowly. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. There are some powerful applications to what we receive from God's Word when we are adopted by Him. Next slide, please. I read a story of a woman who explained that her favorite spot at the local zoo was the quote-unquote house of night, as in day and night, the house of night. This is where all the nocturnal creatures crawled and flew about. She said, One very bright day, I stepped into the exhibit and was plunged into darkness, and almost immediately, a small hand grabbed mine. And to whom do you belong, she asked. The little boy's voice spoke in the darkness. I'm yours till the lights come on. I'm yours till the lights come on. In other words, I'll belong to you until then. And so again, the question that I ask is, who do you belong to? Scripture tells us we have a choice as to who we belong to. You see, you can either belong to God or you can belong to the other guy. Next slide, please. And you have a choice. But the Bible is also clear on a very specific point. You didn't choose God first. He chose you first. 1 John 4, 19 tells us that we love Him because He first loved us. And this is especially clear when we discuss this issue of adoption uh, in the Scriptures. There we go. God adopted you. You didn't adopt Him. When Paul uses the imagery of adoption, he's talking about how the Romans practiced it. In ancient Rome, maybe even just like today, 
the Roman family chose the child that they wanted to adopt. And as part of the adoption, there was a special ceremony where the adopting father went to one of the Roman judges and presented a legal case to justify his right to adopt this child into his household. Next slide, please. The ceremony was called Vindicatio. Vindicatio. William Barclay says that when this ceremony was complete, in the eyes of the law, this person was a new person. A new person based on a legal adoption. So new that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. In other words, once a person went through this vindicatio ceremony, every debt he ever had was erased as if it had never existed. Does this sound familiar to you? Does it look kind of like an English word, by the way? Vindicatio? What about the word vindicate or vindication? One of my dictionaries defines vindicate as to, quote, clear of accusation, to absolve, and to justify. Next slide, please. And isn't that what God did for us when we became believers? He cleared us of any accusation of our guilt and shame. He absolved us, forgave us all of our iniquities and failures. And He justified us so that it was just as if we had never sinned at all. We were vindicated by God who chose us to be adopted as His children. I get the feeling that you all are not getting the full importance and amazing ma- amazement at that fact. God chose us to be His children. And if we accept the invitation, we are vindicated. The vindicatio ceremony is complete. But now there was another part of this adoption process. Seems a simple thing. But it was required then, it's often required now, in order to adopt this child as his own, the adoptive father had to pay a price. Next slide, please. 1 Corinthians 6.20 said, God did that for us. Quote, you were bought at a price. Do you realize that if you adopt a child today, it can cost several thousands of dollars? But 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, It was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from that empty way of life handed down to you from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Messiah. Purchased with the precious blood of Messiah, a lamb without blemish or defect. Who do you belong to? If God has purchased you with the precious blood of Yeshua, then you should belong to Him. And there are all kinds of wonderful things that come along with being His. Next slide, please. First, when you belong to God, you have something special inside you. Romans 8.11 says that now, you are adopt- now that you're adopted, 
His Spirit literally lives in you. And the first beautiful thing about that is this. Because God's Spirit is inside you, He's always there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's right there with you all the time. He'll be there when you're so filled with joy you can't contain it. And He'll be there when life has brought you down so low that you can hardly lift your head up. And not only that, but Romans 8.11 says, He who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. With God's Spirit resting inside you, you have access to God's power when dealing with life's difficulties. And it's that power, dear ones, that gives us the victory over our enemy Satan. As 1 John 4, 4 tells us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. A friend of mine compared this idea to two people about to take part in a race. One of those people is you, and you're sitting there inside a muscle car. Go ahead, take a picture in your mind of whatever muscle car you want. Uh, For me, it's a Dodge Challenger with a, uh, a Hemi engine in it for those of you who even care about that. All kinds of power under the hood. And all you have to do is start the engine and put your foot on the pedal. The other person in the race is Satan. And he's sitting there on a bicycle. Now on his bike, Satan's faster than you are on foot. But greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You got the muscle car, he's got the bike. Of course, the problem for a lot of believers is that they try to rely on their own strength to win the race. They may sit there in a muscle car, but somehow it seems unfair or irrational to start the engine and run the course. So they get out and push the car instead. I don't want to see a show of hands. They push the car instead because, please listen, they believe that their success should depend entirely upon their own efforts. But they will never win the race that way. Not if they don't rely on God's power. And that power is what we received from God the moment that He adopted us. The second thing you received when you were adopted was that you become an heir. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce pointed out that in ancient Rome, a son was, quote, deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and to inherit his estate. When God adopted you, he did so to perpetuate his name. Next slide, please. I mean, what are we called? We're called believers. Believers in who? Believers in Messiah. That means we belong to Messiah. We bear His name. And we've inherited His estate. Do you believe that? We are co-heirs with Messiah. We have an inheritance that blows your mind if you think about it. Unless you are an heir, what has to, um, usually, however, when you're an heir, what has to happen in order for you to receive your inheritance? Someone's got to die. That's right. 
And someone did die. Yeshua, our Messiah. And because He died on that stake and rose from the grave, you and I have access to all kinds of blessings from God. Now, that includes our future in heaven, but listen, please, it also includes blessings on this earth right now. As one person put it, faith isn't just pie in the sky when we die, it's also steak on the plate while we wait. I like that one. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? man once described it this way. Let's say that there's a very rich man in town. And this rich man approaches you, and he says, you know, I admire you, and I'd like to give you a gift. And he hands you a check for a million dollars. I'm just thinking what that would feel like, you know. Of course, to cash this check, you need to endorse it. But you don't have a pen. So you ask the rich man for a pen. Do you suppose he'd give it to you? Do you think a man who has just given you a check for a million dollars would hesitate to give you a $3 pen? How will he, who gave you such an enormous gift, not give you along with that anything else that you could possibly need? And that's what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, because you are an heir of God through Yeshua Messiah, you now have access to all the promises of God. Now, because God's Spirit lives in us, and because we have been made heirs of God, we have a third advantage. And that's found in Romans 8:15. Look there with me or please listen. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. New slide, please. Next slide, please. You remember the story about that little boy in the house of darkness at the beginning of this sermon? Why did he grab the, the woman's hand? He was afraid. And his fear disappeared only when he was able to hold the hand of that woman. And I think that's what Romans 18 is telling us. We can handle fear in our lives because we have the right as adopted children to hold the hand of our Abba Father in heaven. Now, there are believers who are fearful, but this passage says that the more we know about what God has given us, the less we fall prey to fear. In fact, do you know what, most, what the most common command is in Scripture? Do not fear. And we've said this before. Guess how many times it appears in the Bible? 365 times. You believe in coincidence in God's economy? I don't. One for every day of the year. You see, the reason we can face this world without fear is because greater is He that is in me than he that's in the world. And greater are the blessings He can give me than those that the world says 
it can be slow. It can be slow. New slide, please. And every time I remember the power of God inside me and the blessings He's promised to give me, one, I push back against the fear of the unknown. Why? Because God is with me. I push back against the fear of loss and failure. Why? Because He promised to take care of me. And I push back against the fear of being rejected. Why? Because He is always with me. That's one of the hallmarks of the power of our faith. Our ability to overcome fear. New slide, please. And new slide again. I'm one behind. Next slide. There we go. In December of uh, 2008, uh, in the London Times, an atheist wrote an intriguing article. An atheist. It was in December um, of 2008. He had gone to observe one of the charities for the Times in Malawi, Africa. But while he was there, he observed something he said, quote, confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. He, can, he continues, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real, and the change is good. Pretty amazing words for an atheist, huh? He continues, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts, he writes. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to the missionary's flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. And again he continues, We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child I stayed often with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. One of the problems in Africa, he noted, was anxiety, the fear of evil spirits, of ancestors, of nature in the wild, of tribal hierarchy, of quite everyday things, and it strikes deep into the whole structure of rural African thought. He continues, every man has his place and, call it fear or respect, a great, a great weight grinds down on the individual's spirit, stunting curiosity. People won't take the initiative, won't take into their own hands or on their own shoulders. The Christians, by contrast, were always different. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, 
an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealing with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. And he concludes, they stood tall. They stood tall. Why would they stand tall? Why were they liberated and relaxed? Why were they lively and engaged with the world around them? Why? Because they believed in a God who was in them and greater than He that was in the world. They believed in a God who had promised to bless them and to work in their lives. And even an atheist can see this. And so once again, I ask the question, which is the title of this message, who do you belong to? Now, I mentioned earlier that God first loved us. We didn't adopt Him. He adopted us. But from that truth, some have gotten the mistaken idea that since God has chosen us, we can't do anything to choose Him. But that's not true. John 1, 12-13 tells us, quote, To all who received Him, to all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent. You cannot be born a believer. Nor of human decision. You can't just decide you're good enough to be adopted. Or of a husband's will. No one else can make that decision for you. No. You need to be born of God. Galatians chapter 3, 26 and 27 tells us you are all sons of God through faith in Messiah Yeshua. For all of you who were baptized into Messiah have clothed yourself with Messiah. So he who believes and is baptized shall be adopted. He who believes and is baptized shall be adopted. adopted. Or, as Yeshua said in Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. So who do you belong to? Who do you truly belong to? God loved you first. He loved you so much that He gave His only begotten Son to die for you so that you could belong to Him. Just last week, I was talking to someone at McDonald's. She was struggling with the decision to become a believer. So I asked her a series of questions. These are the same kind of questions I ask anyone. Do you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of living God? Yes, she said. Do you accept that you're a sinner? Oh, yeah, she said. Do you believe that only Yeshua can forgive that sin? Yes, she said. And are you willing to confess Him as the Lord and Master of your life? And again, she said yes. So now I'm asking you, are you willing to sign the contract? The contract to be buried in the waters of baptism and risen as a brand new creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved and adopted. My dear ones, who do you belong to? Let's pray. Avinu Malkano, our Father and our King. There is nothing that we can look to that any one of us ever did that would be the reason why you stretched out your hand in love to us. 
with the desire to adopt us. Yet scripture clearly says that you loved us before we ever loved you. And how can we measure your love? How can we measure anything about you? I do know this, Father, that you gave the most precious thing in the world, your only begotten Son, so that you might be fellowship with us and have more children than just him. I don't even understand that. Father, it's my prayer this Shabbat morning, especially on this Shabbat morning before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's my prayer that everyone in this sanctuary has received the adoption of You, Father. It's only by that adoption that we can cast out fear, anxiety, troubles, worries, and eternally important that we can cast out eternal death. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has never received your adoption, loved you because you loved him, became adopted because he wanted to adopt you, I would pray that before they leave this building, that decision would be made. It's a decision of eternal life versus eternal death. Father, I pray for life in your Son's name. Amen.